0: Once I started fly casting, every time I caught a fish on anything but a fly rod, I just felt like I had missed an opportunity to have caught that fish on a fly rod.
1: And and I and I'm sitting there. Could somebody please put a rod in the water?
0: I like to think that fly fishing saved my life, and uh, fly fishing became a passion in which I could I could become completely absorbed and it really helped me through a tough time and i'll I'll always appreciate that about fly fishing
1: chief justice and i sat there whoop there's a flag up we both run to the flag run to the trap and i go well you you take it you it's probably some little shove or something she pulls in the biggest bass of the day
0: Welcome to the Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Tom Ackerman. Today, we'll be talking with the host of Flyline Podcast, Michael Jones. Over the past two seasons of the podcast, there have been a lot of requests from our audience. When will Michael be a guest on the podcast? When will we get to hear his story? As Michael's close friend, he's invited me to host this unique episode. Michael's story is similar to many of his guests. He's a second-generation master Maine guide that has earned his reputation on the rivers in Maine over the past 35 years. He has served as a mentor to many professional guides working in Maine. He's an accomplished whitewater kayaker and has worked extensively in the whitewater rafting industry. This evolved into a mastery of running drift boats and other river craft on Maine rivers. He's guided all of the major rivers in Maine, as well as in faraway and exotic places like Patagonia, Chile, where he managed a successful fly fishing lodge in the Aysen region, using fly fishing rafts to navigate the uncharted rivers flowing out of the Andes Mountains for trophy trout. Michael is a natural teacher and takes a keen interest in helping his guests become better casters and fly fishers by sharing his years of experience at the casting pond and on the water. He served as the New England Coordinator for Project Healing Waters, an organization dedicated to helping veterans heal through the restorative powers of fly fishing. He's learned from and worked with many well-known leaders in the fly fishing industry. He's a student of everything he puts his hand to. He has studied extensively with the Federation of Fly Fishers and has won several regional fly casting championships. He loves to guide on moving water for trout, salmon, smallmouth bass, and pike. He's worked on the pro staff for two major drift boat manufacturers. He's at home on the water, whether on the oars of a drift boat or the tiller of a shallow water jet boat. He knows where the trophy fish live and how to get to them. Michael lives in Naples, Maine with his partner and podcast producer, Sherry Maines. They have two English setters and enjoy the Maine outdoors through all four seasons. It's my distinct pleasure to invite Michael to sit in the pointy end of the boat as our guest today on Flyline podcast, Michael, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you taking this opportunity to switch roles with me because I've been in the hot seat for all this time. And like you said before, I've had a number of people say, when are we going to hear Mike's story? And I, I admit, I, I don't know if I was really ready to do it before, but, um, I think you and I have just spent so much time together, and we know each other so well, and I'm comfortable with you. Right. That if anyone's going to help to tell whatever there is of a Mike Jones story, I think you're you're be able to pull it out of I me. Mean, right. but
0: well, you you know, I've known you long enough to know you've got a great story, and you tell it well. We're, we'll take a, a slow stroll down memory lane here, I'm sure. But we've known each other for over 10 years now. It, it started when my son and I fished with you, and I just remember the way you took him under your wing and. Um, I came away from that experience saying, you know, one of the best guides for lots of different reasons. And what I've come to realize is not only are you a great guide, but you're a great guy and uh, good humor, good company. And I just really, really love spending time with you. I will tell you, it's a little Intimidating, sitting in the command module of the Flyline Podcast. I'm not really sure I'm worthy. <laughs> uh, I just hope that we don't end up with a smoking crater here. What are all these blinking lights <laughs> and the toggles and stuff? And this, you know. But I'm going to do just, the best I can.
1: Just breathe, time. Just <laughs> breathe. Right? And when you don't know what to say, don't yeah. say anything at all. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All Sometimes right. silence is better. All right. Yeah. All no. Sir, but we really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah.
0: No. No. This is great. Well, listen. Let's um, let's kick this off and uh, tell me about. Where you grew up, like Mount Vernon, Maine. I didn't need to make that distinction because people are going to think Virginia. Of
1: course. But but Mount Vernon, Maine, that's where your roots – Right. So George Washington was born in Mount Vernon, Virginia. I was born in Augusta, Maine, and immediately brought out to Mount Vernon. I was born in 1969, so this was hippie country back then. And we grew up on a farm. The farm that we – I grew up in and we owned up until just recently – was built in 1820. Mm-hmm. And so we had chickens and we had rabbits and cows and uh, what we call beef critter. We kill oh, something yeah. every year. Yeah. And so my brother and I learned discipline at an early age. You had to feed the animals. You had to chop the wood. One week I'd mow the front lawn, he'd mow the back lawn. The next week it would be vice versa. So right. we didn't have money. Yeah. You know, my parents were working class people. My mom originally was dental hygienist mm. and clean teeth, and I vividly remember one winter morning she saying, "Okay, go go start the car," and my brother we had a Volkswagen uh, Squareback, yeah. the the Beetle. This yeah. is like a seventy one. Yeah, sure. And on the engine you had to open up. The tailgate, and then you had to lift the compartment, which exposed the little square engine. You remember, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I, I yeah. And I would take the uh, the air breather off and spray the ether, while my brother would sit there and hit the pedals trying to get the. So my mom could go clean teeth all day. Wow. Well, in the meantime, my dad was running a little print shop across the street called Jones the Printer. Mm-hmm. This was back when you could. Uh, make a living, uh, not a killing, but a living making business cards and brochures. So mm-hmm. if you were the local pizza store, you'd have your menu. Right. Jones, a printer would print that for you. Tom Ackerman was a fishing guide. He'd want to have some business cards. Right. Dean Jones, Jones, a printer would print you the cards. The, uh, go to the town meeting, the annual meeting town report. Right. My dad would do all the town reports in the area. Well, ultimately that died off when the modern mimeograph, move forward, the photocopier, the color yeah. printer. So Dad spent the remainder of his career working for J.S. McCarthy, which is a large offset printing company in right. Augusta. Right. And they did all the major accounts with the state of Maine, like state of Maine, right, uh, right. Key Bank, whatnot. Yeah. And my mom progressed <sighs> into um, public health, and she uh, ended up receiving two governor's awards for wow. doing work. So if you remember seeing years ago the old yellow um, – Telephone book used to say, you want to quit smoking? Yeah. That was my mom. Oh, okay. She got the grant money for that okay. when we did the t- tobacco settlement Right. with R.J. Reynolds and all the big companies. Sure. So she brought millions of dollars into the state of Maine for public health. And then she also wrote a few other grants uh, so the people who lived up in Madawaska could have their blood pressure and their uh, glucose checked wow. if they had diabetes. Mm-hmm. And they would do this with a motorhome. Right. And it would come to the Hannaford Brothers or wherever, some mutual place, and yeah, you could yeah. go and get your – My mom wrote the grants for those, and so so she won two Governor's Awards for her work in public health. Wow. Um, Dad, when he retired, hiked the entire length of the Appalachian Trail at 62. Wow. And mom, when she retired, went to New Zealand and spent the whole summer there um, just kind of traveling. Just free spirit. Real adventurous people. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's kind of in your DNA. It it? is. Yeah. So growing up on the farm, my dad and I would trout fish, right, Mm -hmm. with a Zepco. Right. Oh, yeah. Also, you know, I did a lot of pickerel fishing, you mm-hmm. know, with a real red and white red devil. Oh, yeah. yeah. And we get on something like just even a raft we could create and get right. out on a place where you could, you know, throw a lure and catch a fish. Right. And then, of course, just down the road was Wings Mills Dam, which is part of the Belgrades. Oh, yeah. And there was salmon there. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't long. If you listen to like the Steve Berry podcast and Nick Sibilia teaching me how to tie the fishing knot, right. a lot happened in where I grew up. Sure. It started to inspire me about you know, getting into fishing.
0: Yeah. Well, you were in an area there that was known for some fantastic fishing. And, you know, and, and probably in your younger years, it didn't include bass, but later on.
1: Right. It did. That was a salmon place. Yeah, would. Uh, exactly. You know, Mesolonsky had uh, the, the 9'3", the fly was a 9-pound three. Right. Dr. Sam Warren caught that fish. Right. Castle Island Camps. Castle Island Camps, exactly, right in Belgrade, Ingram Ingram Stream. Yes, sir. And and, you know, you and I could catch some big bike in there right now. Sure, sure. So that's what it's turned into over the years. But I, um, our neighbor, interestingly, because really, you know, a natural question is how'd you get into fly fishing, right? Right. My dad was not a fly fisherman. Um, I originally was interested in fly fishing because I was seeing some other people do it. We do a summer vacation to Moosehead. Okay. And I was seeing other people fly casting and that mesmerized me. So I went down to the Indian Hill Trading Post in Greenville. You've been there. Oh yeah. And I bought well I went in and I asked them what should I buy and they sold me a eagle claw yellow fiberglass two-piece, seven foot. I don't know what the weight was, it was probably like a five. Right. And it had (laughs) a medalist 1486 reel or whatever that was. Probably
0: put an H G H line on it, right? Before <laughs> they did the, the afterma line no, no.
1: designation. Th- th- it might have been, this was a level line. Oh, yeah. Level a, level. In other words, audience, non-tapered. Exactly, right, not wait-forward, exactly. not, not double Flat or right. just bad casting line right. is what we'll call right, it. Right, right. Uh, with a little – uh, press in eyelet yeah, at I mean, the end, the metal one. Yeah. And then I tie Maxima onto that and I go to Maynard's. This is when I'm 11. Yeah, yeah. So I go out and I beat them. The reason I was doing this is because when we were up there, we were staying at Sundown Cabins, which mm-hmm. is in Rockwood. And the next set of cabins over was Mount Kenio Cabins. And you're looking right at Mount Kenneo. Oh, it's beautiful. Staying at Mount Kineo Cabins long-term is this guy named John McLeod. John used to own a fly shop in... Hollowell. I didn't know that then, but I know this now. Well, he has a daughter who's a contemporary of mine. In other words, she's 11, she's blonde, she's cute, and she's out on the dock Uh casting. Uh So if I go now, I talk myself into this. If I go now to the Greenville and get the fly rod and I walk down to that dock, she's going to teach me how to do it. There you go. That's what happened. No kidding. Yeah, that's what happened. So wow. Morgan McLeod, John's oldest daughter, right, taught me how to fly cast on the. Uh, so anyhow, you know, really, you think you taught? I was taught. I was shown how to get it out of off the raft. Right, right. And then when I came home, I was trying in, in the yard, and my neighbor Dave Toby drove by, and he pulled in. Well, he was an expert fly caster. He was an Atlantic salmon guy, Bangor. He'd go up and oh, fish sure. in Bangor. Oh, yeah. Member of the club. His father had something to do with. IF and W. He mm-hmm. was either a fisheries biologist or a politician on the IF and W. Right. David Toby was my neighbor's name. His father was somebody, and I don't know. Yeah. But his father obviously had been had mentored him into learning how to fly fish. Okay. So David took me under his wing. Again, my dad knows nothing about fly cast. David teaches me how to double haul on the first day. Wow. So I was like maybe thirteen for this point, die. and I'm starting to learn the mechanics of casting. Wow. So I really became interested. Really only fly fishing at that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that, that, that's that's what it was like growing up there. Yeah. And we had, you know, there were, in Mount Vernon, when I was a kid, there were grouse in the trees still. Oh, sure. You could go woodcock hunting. We <laughs> had Britney Spaniel. I got into bird hunting at a very young age. Right. Um, my parents did a great job. I have an older brother, Patrick. He was, he has a, a great talent for art. Mm-hmm. And he went to the Art Institute of Chicago and never left, still right. lives in Chicago. right. I'm just the opposite. I can't stand traffic and cars and right. congestion and tall yeah. buildings. I need to be near the outdoors and right. the blue skies. And yeah. I just, but we, we get along great. We're very different.
0: No. Yeah. It sounds like an idyllic. Upbringing, it was. really, I mean, you know, I'm thinking I'm flashing on uh Mayberry RFD and Opie uh, Taylor and Sheriff. Taylor, yeah. You know, but uh, what a neat experience. What, a, and it's, it's funny because, uh, um, it's something that's really shaped you as to become the person that you are. And the you never really had a desire to, to
1: leave. No. Matter of fact, when I did leave, after I graduated from college, uh I moved out of state for about a year and I couldn't get back to Maine fast enough. Yeah. So I didn't mention this Tom, but my dad was was always involved in politics. Mm-hmm. He was a, a selectman right. in our in our town. Right. For years, for for a number of reasons. He was good at it. Right. He knew how to balance the budget. He knew how to make sure the roads were getting plowed, the ditches were getting cleaned up, the culverts were getting replaced, the teachers were getting paid. Wow. Um, You know, we're going to not have a dump anymore. We're going to have a transfer station. He knew how to navigate all of that. And also stay on the right side of the politics so that everyone was happy at the end of the day.
0: That's a rare gift we could use more of those guys today
1: yeah okay. well exactly right. right it's it's it was different then and yeah. you know it was interesting to have the fa- my father being this person because he wasn't really uh, yeah he was charismatic actually he was charismatic he was he was interesting to be around but he he could convince you you know he was a good salesman right. like like you know i'm a, i'm a decent salesman yeah, but he was a good. he was a good salesman and so that's what led him to getting into he became a a legislator okay I don't know if I told you that before. No. Yeah, Dad was a legislator, and he um, he ended up getting a brain tumor. Ugh. Twelve days after diagnosis, he died. Oh my gosh! And so, you know, the, I remember going to um, to uh, the cancer center and sitting there with the doctor while he was in getting his uh, his radiation treatment. And I said, "What's going to happen?" He says. I'm either going to cure him or I'm going to kill him. Mm. Well, they, they killed him. Not intentionally, right. but they killed him. Yeah. So how old were you, Michael? How old was
0: I? I was in my
1: <laughs> late 30s. Okay. Um, yeah. Mm. And so I'm sitting, you know, the day, the days immediately following this, it's occurring to me, my mother is more qualified to take his seat mm-hmm. in the legislature <coughs> than he was. To be sitting in it imso- I mean, masters in public administration, sure. two-time governors' award. She knows how to navigate right. complicated issues. So she became a legislator and filled my dad's seat.
0: That's amazing. So yeah. that was the line of succession. Exactly. Right.
1: I just wanted to get that. Yeah, no, no that's, that's part of the story. Yeah, of no, what guide guides me? You know, uh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. That's an amazing story. Um. So, you what what are your recollections? Your earliest jobs working around the water in the outdoors and that type of thing.
1: Right. So both of my parents were guides, but my father was a really, uh, he was really interesting guiding. He of course worked in the printing industry, but whenever he could, he would take someone down the Allagash or the St. John. He was more of a canoe recreational type guy. And people would do, I'm sure they still do, you know, I will pay you to organize the oh, shuttle, the yeah. food, yeah, yeah. all that. So all I have to do is show up, hand me a paddle and a life jacket. We'll right. go down and do this legendary trip down the When My dad was good at it. And so when the rafting industry started to be become, it, it was evolving in Maine. And I don't remember exactly when this was, but it had to have been in the early 80s. Right. Yeah, it was in the early 80s. They had run a raft down through the Kennebec Gorge. This is, again, post-log drive. But all the things were still there. Chase Stream Sluice, the metal sluice where the logs used to get thrown into the river up in the gorge, was still there. I don't think it still is, but right. it was then. So dad, as a recreational guide, it was a natural transition to, for him to become a whitewater rafting guide. Wow. What fun. Oh, yeah. You know, it's only a <laughs> six-hour, eight-hour commitment. Right. You get a one-day paycheck. You get a steak dinner at the end. Yeah, yeah. You're a hero for all these eight passengers you Yeah, have. sure. So dad got into that. I got into it. Mom got into it, and my brother Patrick got into it. And there was one trip where all four of the Joneses guided their own boat down the Kennebec Gorge on one day. We were the wow. first family, complete family, to guide on the river together. That's pretty amazing. It's been repeated since, but we yeah, were the yeah. first to do it. Wow. And Of course, that's become big business now, but back then- No, actually, just the opposite. Oh, really? It it used to be- No, you're right, Tom. I mean, it, when we got into it, it was small business. right. There was an explosion in the 90s where we would have eight boat to 10 boat trips a day, all day, all summer. Wow, I mean, there was everyone coming up to tr- go whitewater rafting. Yeah, yeah. Much like people might go skiing, but whitewater rafting, as it turns out, is one of those things you don't have to do it every year. You just need to do it once or twice. It's a bucket list item. Yeah, it's like that. So once people had done it a few times, it was hard to get them to come back and do. We try to say, okay, do the Kennebec, come do the Penobscot, do the Dead. Right. Once you kind of ran the gamut. Yeah. You know. So yeah, it started to die off. But I was there, and my father was there during the heyday. Mm. And I remember years of guiding. I ended up being a guide on the West Branch of the Penobscot. Right. And I was working for uh, John Willard, Wilderness Rafting, which is based out of Rockwood, the Birches. Oh, for sure. those yeah. that know the lake. Yeah. And we would run, you know, anywhere from six to 10 boats down the, uh, the gorge on the Penobscot on a daily basis. Yeah.
0: So this was summer work for you?
1: Well, yeah. And actually, I, I'm forgetting the most interesting job I had. Uh, before I was old enough to guide, they hired me to do photography out of my kayak. Uh, so I was, into, I was very interested in whitewater kayaking yeah. um, and learned from others on the river how to do it and became a quick study. Right. And so imagine taking a Nikon FM2 with a motor drive and putting it in a military ammunition can and tucking that between your legs pulling on a spray skirt and paddling down through the gorge in the crib work on the Penobscot, right. pulling up on a rock, jumping out, putting on the, the lens, putting on the motor drive and shooting a uh, slide film and slide film color, right? Mm-hmm. You have to process it. So I would have a little Honda generator. My day would end at noontime because I needed to spend the afternoon developing E6 processing this process. And, yeah. process. <clears throat> and so instead of having a dark room, you just had a dark bag mm-hmm. and you'd unload the, the film canister right. onto a reel and then go through the chemical process of developing e6 processing and i'd have to have 105 degree water whatever right. it was i have to right. boil water it could be in there for four minutes the timer goes off you gotta and there's a whole there's a lot of memories oh yeah in your hands of, of for course. 80 people and then there's a slideshow at the end of the day and i was responsible for handing over the carousel mm-hmm. to the head Guide. Right. This is when I'm a teenager. Oh my
0: gosh, that's that's some serious responsibility. And then
1: I became a, a rafting guide. Right. Because you could earn a tip. Yeah. And so there was a little more money there. Right. So that you know, to answer your question, that's kind of how I got started with moving water mm-hmm. recreation.
0: Yeah. And the, and that became, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, it, um, as far as your career goes and your love of water, Bill. You know, uh, most of your Uh, pursuits, a river runs through it. Exactly. You know, and so um, do you even had a a point in time where you wanted to make a career out of being a kayaker, a whitewater kayaker, is that right? I
1: did, yeah.
0: What what happened there?
1: So I was, yeah, there was a lot going on in kayaking at the time when I was involved in it. There was, you could be an Olympic slalom kayaker, you still can be. Um, You could be a Someone that does, you know, what we see on YouTube, which is hucking off from waterfalls. Right. Uh, so you could be like an extreme kayaker, but there's no money in that. Um, but the other thing you could do is at the time, which I was starting to get involved in, was squirt boating, which is a neutral buoyancy. It's basically a boat that is just barely afloat. They would literally say to you when they made the boat for you, what do you weigh? Wow. So if I weighed 155 pounds, which is what I weigh now, yeah. um, they would make a boat that if I sat in it, it would be neutrally buoyant at, at for 155 pounds of displacement. Right. So if I wanted to point the bow and paddle forward, I could make the stern come straight up in the air and we could do cartwheels and all right. this stuff. It's called squirt boating. Okay. And I was very interested in that as well. So that was an aside, slalom kayaking, doing downriver races, slalom races, doing stuff around New England. Um it wasn't a large community of competitive kayakers so it wasn't hard to win stuff and I did right right but I was competitive I wanted to win yeah. and I was decent at it so yeah. I try hard right. and I like fly casting or anything you, you it's a it's a 90% of it's a mental game. Right. Like, how am I going to paddle this long course? Right. How am I going to go the fastest down the Kanduskeg River? Yep. Um, you know, maybe I should run the, the the portage rather than paddle the hard part. Sure. So you just navigate all these things. Well, anyhow, um, I got injured. I was with a buddy and I was on the south branch of the Penobscot. This is up above the west branch. This is above Suboomic Lake. Okay. And we had big, big, big spring water. And we were paddling, just the two of us. I went down over this 20-foot waterfall and dislocated my right shoulder. (gasps) He was fortunately standing at the bottom. We were smart enough to be doing doing some safety. And when I didn't roll up, he jumped in the river and flipped me upright. Wow. And my shoulder was dislocated Mm. and remained out of location until I got to the Charles Dean Hospital in Greenville, which was three hours and one flat tire later. Ouch. And so mm. they popped it back in. Mm. And I remember going back up, because we had to abandon our kayaks. And we, um, we commissioned a friend of mine who was a kayaker to join my other friend to go retrieve the boats. And while they were doing that, I'm standing on the bridge over the south branch of the Penobscot, and I happened to have my fly rod in my hand. No, I'm serious. Wow. And I'm in a sling, but I just wrist cast and I said to myself, you can still fly fish. Wow. Wow. And that was kind of what led me down the next. That's amazing.
0: I was going to ask where the intersection. That's it. The love of fly fishing and the love of kayaking intersected somewhere.
1: It was whitewater rafting and kayaking was a divorce that I did not Mm -hmm. uh, enlist. Right. It happened to me. I couldn't kayak anymore. Even with surgery, you just... It's too dangerous. You can't be in the middle of a Class Five rapid and have a dislocated shoulder. It's just—it's a—it's a no-win situation. Right. It's a its a—you're signing up for death.
0: Yeah, I fished with you in some pretty heavy white water, and I have never felt safer. Thank you. In 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 any boat with any person, and uh, I remember thinking when we went down through that stretch of by the East Outlet, I just said, "Wow!" I felt like I was as safe as in my mother's arms, you know. And I just realized that you had a specific skill set that most of my fishing guides didn't have, and that is, like I said, you melded that passion for whitewater and that knowledge and that skill and that expertise with being able to read the water as an angler and as a fishing guide, and that to me was one of the reasons why I said you're one of the best guides that I've ever spent time with in the water, because you were the the whole package.
1: Having a background in whitewater and in whitewater kayaking definitely paid dividends for transitioning into drift boating. Understanding how current works, not just moving water, but three-dimensionally, it's going <laughs> at a different speed at the bottom than it is on the top. The water on the top is going much faster than the water on the bottom. That's why we mend when we nymph, Yep, right? sure, yep. Yeah. Um, understanding how – where fish would lie in the river depending on which direction the flow is going. As -hmm. an example, in a back Mm eddy, if you're on the Green River, you might see a fish facing downriver. Right. Well, he's actually facing the current. Exactly. Right? So there's all those hydrodynamics that are going on. But to your point about being confident, Ian Cameron – is another guide that came out of the rafting industry. Chris Russell is another main guide that mm-hmm. came out of the rafting industry. So I i wasn't alone. Scott Snell, um, Wilson's Camp's up on Moosehead, right. another guide that came out. These guys, we all used to wear the whistle and carry the throwback. We were yeah. rafting guides. Yeah, yeah, we're sure. we were all Penobscot guides. Right. Chris was more of a Kennebec guide, but we all were versed whitewater people that became professional fly fishing guides. And it didn't hurt that we knew how to run rivers. So the drift driftbow, the Mackenzie style drift boat is a seductive looking boat. Mm-hmm. And I started to think, even years before I ever bought a drift boat, John McLeod, remember John McLeod? Oh, sure. The daughter Morgan taught yes. me how to fly cast. Yep. John had the first drift boat in Maine. Okay. He was the first guide to pioneer. Drift boats on waters in the state of Maine. Mm-hmm. We all owe a debt of grat- gratitude to John McLeod. I would go. So here we are going down the Penobscot. You go down the upper gorge, you come down through the crib works, then you come to Big Eddie. That's where everything starts to calm down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you'd be floating, not uncommon, oh. more common than not, to leave Big Eddie and be floating down toward Big Amberjack Mockamas. And you'd come across John in a McKenzie drift boat with clients Wow. catching salmon. And brook trout. Yep. And I remember floating by this guy and saying to myself, this guy has got the world by the tail. Right. I mean, he's got this beautiful green McKenzie boat. He's got two guys. He's probably charging a couple hundred dollars a day. I'm making 80 on a good day. Right. And I'm getting a steak for free, but he's getting more like two or 300 a day.
0: Right. Plus a generous gratuity.
1: That as well. And catching fish, and you know, I've already got my eye on fly fishing right. and it was not lost on me that maybe this guiding thing right and so anytime i go fishing and i saw a drift boat it was like a dog going up to a hydrant i had to go look at it. i had to go and a drift boat to me looked like a ferrari 308 gt oh yeah it was just beautiful if right. it was a wooden one a fiberglass one of course back then there weren't any fiberglass right. around right so yeah i mean i i guess yeah
0: yeah, so how'd you get into guiding? I mean, when getting your license and you made a decision somewhere along the way, you did the, you evaluated the business models. You did the comparison. And you said, you know what? I think this is a better model. And, um, and, and where did you go from there? How did you get actually into guiding and doing it for hire?
1: Well, so I, I had been a guy, you know, you are, if you're a whitewater rafting guide, you are a main That's guide. True, yeah. So I was a main guide at 18 years and one week. I was right. one of the youngest guys to ever get a guide's license. And I don't remember exactly when I decided to get my fishing license, but I did along the way. Uh, a couple of guides on the river, because I was a fly, I would go fly fishing on a oh, Penobscot in the evening after the trip was over. Sure. Clients would leave at four and we had the evening off. So I'd go fishing because there are all these salmon jumping around oh, and yeah. you know, the caddis, and you could catch them with about anything. Right. So I started to have friends ask me, hey, will you take my uncle out? Or would you do this? Would you do that? So I thought, you know, I probably should get my guide's license. So I got my guide's license. And um, long story short, just, Tom, to really answer your question, how did I get into professional guiding? Yeah. I graduated from University of Maine at Farmington with a degree in biology. Mm-hmm. Just like we did in your podcast. Yeah. I took all the mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Turns out if you do really well in science and, you know, I was top 10, if you right. will. You know, it's, you know. They want you to get into medicine, yeah. And my advisor, who was a great guy, and he really helped me have a successful college experience. It pushed me really hard, made me take all the hard classes. And he said, you know, you should think about getting into medicine. You know, become a, a PA or you know something like that, a doctor, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I went. I was working as a on a paramedic team in Farmington Delta mm-hmm. Ambulance. So I had some experience there. Plus, it helped to have you had to be an EMT to work on a river. It didn't have to be an EMT, you but it helped to be an EMT. Sure. I think you got ten dollars more a day if you're an EMT versus just a basic first aid, but you had to have first aid training to be a main gun yeah. back then. Yep. So I graduated from college. Uh I volunteer for a year at Togus and I also volunteer up at, uh, in Waterville at Thayer Unit and also at um it used to be Augusta General, then it turned into Central Maine Medical Center or what, whatever it is now. Right. What is Augusta? I can't remember now. I think
0: it's Central Maine Medical
1: Center. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I would go into the emergency room and spend a whole shift there with one of the doctors and just shadow them around. Sure. What I learned is that I didn't want to be in the medical field. So I had been accepted at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School down in Piscataway, New Jersey to become a physician assistant. Right. And I didn't want to leave Maine. So I deferred my acceptance. They had some conditions too. They wanted me to take another college course, but they were going to accept me if I took that course. So there was a contingency there that I remember. It was just about that time or just before that Robert Redford had written and produced and filmed A River Runs Through Oh, yeah. So now I've got this fishing guide's license and you can guess what happened next. Mm -hmm. The phone rang off the hook. You were at Beans at the time. Uh, exactly. So it was like you could do no wrong.
0: Right, right.
1: I bet I made twenty or thirty thousand dollars that summer guiding. Sure, yeah, And it was
0: the thing. You know, I mean, what do you remember? Re- re-
1: what do you remember? About? I, re-
0: I remember that our enrollment at the B and Fly Fishing Schools we had waitlist. We never had to waitlist people before, but uh, and th- this was the introductory schools in Freeport, three day schools. Uh, they were like three hundred and ninety five dollars for uh, you know thirty uh, students per class, and we had this, they were full. The whole year. And I remember the, the VP of retail, who I reported to, called me to the office. He said, what is going on with the fly fishing schools? What do, do you, you know, know who I am? I I'm said, Tom they Ackerman. Said, he said, <laughs> said, what do you attribute this to? It." And I said, leadership. <laughs> <laughs> it's all me. It's all me. Right? I want to be and, modest. And, but, and, and, I, and I, always, I always wished that they came out with a sequel to A River Runs Through It. And you know what they would have called it? A river reruns through. <laughs> I just thought that would be a great – it was good for business, so for sure. And, I mean, it. and, and then the the, the the I guess we called them yuppies at the time. Oh, yeah. What, it was what we called the snake, the rat through the snake from a demographic standpoint, yeah. you know? And it's like, what did that slug of people – what did they move on to? Bungee jumping or pickleball or whatever it happens to be, they moved on from – fly fishing to whatever came next.
1: Oh, I don't know that they did. Yeah. I, I thought I remembered seeing a lot more people on the river after that. That's true. Yeah.
0: But, it, you know, it's like anything. It's like you give them a proper introduction to it. You try to make it as entertaining and as informative and as inspirational as you can. But in the end, it's their decision. Right. Yeah. Whether they want to stick with it or not. And, and like you and I know, not, fly fishing is not for
1: everyone. No, no. And to your point, everyone wanted to try it. Exactly. That's what's being said is that at that point in the history of the sport, there were more people wanting to put their hand to it. Right. And as you alluded to, Tom, some of us, you and I, yeah. benefited greatly from it yeah, and were positioned in the right place at the right time for that. Right. So that's really what guided me because yeah, yeah, yeah. at that point, why would I want to... Be um, releasing someone's abscess and sewing them up yeah. in a windowless room oh, oh when goodness. I could be sitting in a 16 foot right. fiberglass drift boat, right, getting ready to make uh, steak lunch on the side of the it, river exactly. and catching fish all day long.
0: Exactly, and it gets down to like <clears throat> who you are as a person and what matters most in your life. What are your core themes? And for you, I know you well enough. To know it's it's not just the outdoors and. Um, the 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 wild places and the the free ranging rivers, but it's sharing it with other people okay Those are two main themes in your life, and you have found a way to express those,
1: yeah, and you know if you listen to the podcast that I did with Bob Dion, he goes into length about how we started out our guide service at artvark and and also you know I started going in other directions, but right. the thing. Listen to that if you want to know more about this time that I'm talking about. But um, the thing that was really important to him and for him to translate to me, and it translated to me and it paid off, was that we needed – if I was going to be successful in this career as a guide, I didn't need to know one river or one section or even a few sections in one river. Right. I needed to know how to cast. Mm -hmm. I needed to know how to teach casting. I right. needed to know how to teach drift boats, how right. to row them, how to use them right. safely. Mm-hmm. So I did that. I do that. Oh, yeah. Um, I needed to understand all the entomology, mm-hmm. the knots, right? right? Right. So, yeah, you hire a guide and they're going to know their knots and they're going to know their bugs. And But my goal was to know as much as I could right. about that and not just on a main level. Right. Like, understand what is a tropical fly line? Yeah. How is it different? How is tactical that you're going to use in a destination right. different? So, I think that that's maybe where I try to take it to a different place than maybe my contemporaries And, were. You,
0: and you do it. And you do it well. You have a, what I call a... A lifelong love of learning. You are a student, not just of fly fishing, but of everything that you put your hand to, as we mentioned in the intro. And that's, that's something I really respect about you. You're in the learning mode all the time. All the time. Yeah, all the
1: time. And I, I mean, it's a sponge. And, she- I, do, and I tell people, you know, and I, I'll say this over and over. I'm not that smart of a guy. It's that I've been around long enough to see the mistakes made so many times that I can avoid them. Right. And I have. I've been really blessed. Um, you know, as you know, we can talk about some of the f- famous people that I've been lucky, yourself included, right. you know. But you know, there's some people that are more important than you and I, Tom, that I've had in my boat. But it's not those guys that I learned as much from. I learned as much from any guy that got in my boat and said, "Hey, I want to show you a trick." Right. Hey, I want to show you a fly that works really well for me. Mm-hmm. But this is how you have to fish it. Right. Or how many times? I mean, your guy, Tom. Yeah, yeah. How many? You learn from your. People, right? I did. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, I would guide 100 days a year on average for, you know, 20 years. Right. You've got to come away with a lot of knowledge from other people. Right. I think one
0: of the things that uh, sets you apart from a lot of people that guide, and there's a lot of great guides in the world, is your commitment to fly casting, not just in being able to cast a fly but in being able to teach others to cast a fly. That to me is puts you head and shoulders of most above most of the guys that are making a living at guiding it. And, uh, and I've, both of us have guided for a long time. We both know a lot of guides. And if you ask them just in a moment of real sheer uh, clarity and honesty, you say, what's your biggest frustration of uh, guiding? And, uh, It's not the lousy tippers. It's no. It's what it is. Is you know, I get guys that spend a ton of money to come down here or out there or wherever to fish with me, and they can't close the deal. They cannot cast, and it's so. And I feel bad for them. I'm frustrated. They're frustrated, and yet you have a formula
1: for dealing with that. I do. And so, great point. Um, I I have found that you cannot fish. And learn how to fly cast at the same time. I'm going to repeat that. Right. You cannot fish and learn how to fly cast at the same time. Right. So what I found was, let's say that you and I were going down the Inverscoggin River, and it's July, and you've brought your, uh, cu- your cousin uh, Jerry from Iowa who's visiting. And Jerry can fly cast, but he thinks he can fly cast, but he can't quite close the deal, as you said so so well. I pull into the frog water. In other words, I pull into eight inches of water on the side of the river where you couldn't catch a fish if your life depended on it. Right. This is where we're going to spend 15 minutes. Right. Working on extending the cast another whatever, 10 feet, making a tight line presentation. Right. Uh Casting in front of the boat, not beside the boat. We're not going to be fishing, casting where the fish were. We're going to be casting where the fish are going to be. Sure, sure. Um, so just really separating casting from fishing. Too many guides will, like, if you hired the next main guide in Rangeley, he'd take you to the Galloway River, rush you down the trail, get you into the pool, walk you into the pool and say, cast right there. You can't teach someone how to fly cast. In a situation like that, you could, but you're going to ruin the pool. Right, right. So the beauty of the drift boat for me was it's a magic carpet that could become a place where the other thing I noticed about drift boat fishing is all my problems were within arm's reach. Right. If I was guiding on the river That's and a I'm good wade point. fishing,
0: yeah,
1: right. Someone up river just caught a fish. The guy down river just broke off his flies. You're running up and down the river. There's no room for you to teach anybody anything. Right, right. Where the drift boat was, hey, let's cut that fly off completely and just work on the cast for a few minutes. Yep. It offered so much opportunity to teach right. that I found more pe- people were coming back and saying, Mike, I learned so much from you. Right. The last couple of times I've come, I've brought my son. You've done it. Tom. Oh yeah, you brought TJ to me to yeah, teach him yeah. oh, exactly
0: twice. Oh yeah,
1: right. Yep, yeah. and he's still and Like I
0: said, I think the the seeds for his lifelong long love of fly fishing were sown back then. I really do, and they're still bearing fruit. It's great. We're we're going to Louisiana next week to fish for redfish. And then he'll be joining us in Labrador again next June.
1: And you too. Listening audience can join us in Labrador <laughs> right. in 2024. We have a few seats available. Yeah, can't go, right? Classic now, the, order connections. Order now, don't delay. <laughs> don't delay right? <laughs> right. Uh, Operators are waiting that, by. That's, that's right, right. But no, uh, no that, that,
0: but that's you know, we used. I used to have a, a
1: little
0: routine that I went through, kind of. Uh, um, a pre float when I would get together with a, a, a new client on the Kennebec, I had a little cove I'd pull into. We'd get you know, we'd do the whole thing, okay, welcome aboard, blah blah. blah, blah. And I'd pull into this little cove and I'd say, well, Let's just work the sand out of the gears. And I'd take an eight weight or no, and I had it to strips some line off for two reasons. One is I wanted to see what kind of hand I've been dealt, yes, and um, and uh, it, that was the, the main reason because before we made a long run to somewhere. Where they can't if they can't cast past their own shadow, That's right. it's gonna be very frustrating for them and for the guide. Yeah. And and you try to put your your clients in a position where they're gonna have no failure and and maximum success. Totally. You know, as far as distance from the bank, the wind direction, all of that. And as a guide, you, you're thinking that all the time. They're not even the the sports aren't even aware of it.
1: I had this thing I knew <laughs> every time, just like you and your cove. Let's say I was on the east outlet or really anywhere. It didn't matter. Very often I'll get in the drift boat and I have this little charade that I do that you don't know about. It's called just give me a few minutes to get organized. Right. So if I have someone that hasn't cast a fly rod in a while, or maybe they've never cast one before. Right. uh, If it's a right-hander and I've got him in the front, I'll say just cast to the left-hand side. So all the danger is outside of the front of the boat. Right, Tom? Right, yeah. So I'll just say, listen, guys. If you don't mind, just like you say, let's get the sand out of the gears. Let's work, let's try to loop, you know, lube up the chain here. Right. Just try to do it. And I say, Janet, just do what you think it should feel like. Yeah. yeah. And I shut up right. and allow people. And you know what? If you leave someone alone and you don't talk a lot, they work a lot of it out on their own. Oh, for for and Sure. Especially someone that can do it, but they haven't done it in a while. Mm-hmm. They just need some practice. And if you immediately put them over a rising fish, right. they panic. Yep. So I found by, hey, I'm going to get organized. All I'm really doing is moving coolers around yeah, and right, maybe right. rigging a rod. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's. But the reality is, is I'm allowing people to relax exactly. in this boat so with important. me yep. for five or 10 minutes before right. we even start the whole listen to what I'm gonna say next and here we're gonna come into this scenario. You know what I mean?
0: Oh, I know exactly what you mean. Those are those are um aspects or tr- components to being a good guy, to be even aware of that kind of stuff. I don't know when to shut up. Exactly. Right. Don't overcoach. All right. Well Mike, I think we're at a good place to take a quick break and uh when we come back, I want to talk to you a little more about drift boats.
1: Sounds great, Tom. All right. This Flyline flashback focuses on the film A River Runs Through It. A River Runs Through It is a 1992 American drama film directed by Robert Redford. The film won the Academy Award for Best Cinematography and was also nominated for Best Music, Original Score, and Best Adapted Screenplay. The film grossed over $66 and received exceptional reviews. The screenplay was based on the 1976 semi-autobiographical novella, A River Runs Through It, by Norman MacLean. The story is set in Montana and follows two sons of a Presbyterian minister, one studious and the other rebellious, as they grow up and come of age in the Rocky Mountain region during a span of time from roughly World War I to the early days of the Great Depression, including part of the Prohibition era. In 1991, when Rutford was directing the film, he said he hoped it would inspire people to keep some western places and rivers wild and free. The film boosted the local fly fishing and real estate industries, attracted tourists to Montana, and drew attention to the state's beauty and beloved rivers. The Montana Department of Commerce called it all a river runs through it syndrome. In the modern fly fishing industry, a river runs through it is referred to as the movie and as a result, it was timely and influential for the sport. Redford felt that every new fly fisherman is a new advocate for cold, clean rivers and healthy trout habitat. Women were inspired by the film's cinematography and began coming to the sport for its beauty. You may recall from a previous Flyline flashback involving Joan Wolfe, her women's only casting school exploded following the release of the film in 1992. The film captured the beauty of fly casting and featured the up-and-coming casting guru Jason Borger from the casting double for three of the main actors. Borger performed the shadow cast, which was a combination of Belgian casting and a pendulum cast, and was mesmerizing to experience on the big screen. An image of Borger shadow casting was ultimately used for the film's poster. Most people think that this is a movie about fly fishing, but most fans agree that it's also a movie about a family. To capture the growth with numbers, the fly fishing industry doubled in size after A River Runs Through It was released. This industry saw a whopping 60% increase in 1992, the year the movie came out, and grew another 60% in 1993. And now, back to the second half of our episode. So, Tom, related to drift boats and kayaking... Wait, now wait, no, wait, wait, wait a second. This, you,
0: you stepped all over my line, Mike. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Okay, we're back. And uh, Michael, it's time to get back in the boat, uh, push off, and head downriver. Speaking of boats, we were going to talk more about drift boats.
1: Yeah, so another, in, you know, one little bit of history, and you won't know this, but people that really study or have owned drift boats might recall this. In 2000, 2001, Craft. I was working with Clackacraft, they're out of Oregon, had what was called the tunnel hull, mm-hmm. okay? Now you think of tunnel hulls with jet boats, right? right? But they were going to introduce a tunnel hull on their boats. And I was had been doing a lot with whitewater kayaking. And back at that time, there was a kayak company called Riot. And they, they had incorporated putting golf ball dimples on the bottom of their whitewater kayaks so that there was less resistance with spinning on a wave if you were trying to like rotate three-dimensionally on a wave – Um, and so this idea that maybe if they put dimples on the bottom of a drift boat, it would reduce drag. So I'm talking with Jack Parker, who is one of the head guys at clack craft at the time. The next year, they come out with the Gulf Stream hull on clack craft Everyone had to have one, sold all their boats and had to have one. Right. The year after that, I said, Jack, you can make it even better by putting a reverse keel in. So a keel, as we think of, Tom, is a piece of wood on the bottom of the boat that makes it go straight Right. if you're on a lake. Yeah. Not good on a river. On a river, you have a reverse keel. It's the inversion of the keel Uh going up into the bottom, right? So if you put two of those along the sides of the boat, and then you have the Gulf Stream hull plus the tunnel on the bottom, this is going to ferry across the river like an arrow. Right, Right? Right. Right. Everyone bought it. I had several of these boats, Gulfstream Holt. So this was my idea working with the company to do this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The problem is, is that technology really doesn't work unless the boat's going about 40 miles an hour. <laughs> we found this out. Yeah, <laughs> the right? hard way. Right. On a golf ball, the dimples right allow the boat to travel further, really on the drive. Right. And then- if you, yeah, and Tom's got a golf ball in his hand. And if you are to use the grooves on the club to interact with the dimples on the golf ball, right. you might get some spin, right? you get some control over that. But when you incorporate that technology into the bottom of a drift boat, it doesn't mean a damn thing. It doesn't change. Sh- the water's not going fast enough right. underneath the boat to make a difference. But right. that was my attempt at trying to improve an industry that- in theory, it would have worked, but in practice, it didn't make right. a difference. And now they don't, they don't do the dimples anymore. Wow. So You
0: were you out there four decimal places, buddy. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's pretty amazing that you – I mean, are you a hydrologist by education?
1: Well, no. But, I mean, as if you're a squirt boat kayaker or you're a slalom kayaker, you are it, always it, thinking of that. How can I shave another ounce off? Yeah. How can I get another mile an hour? How can I get – right? that's all that was about. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: That's, that's fascinating. Like I said, there's just – one of the dimensions that you, you've revealed today that, I, I mean, I didn't realize that your passion, yeah you know, because it's, to me, a boat um, is a vehicle, like a canoe, uh, to get me to the fishing. And that's about it. And people used to say, you want to go for a sail or a canoe ride? I go, why? <laughs> you, right. know, yeah. you know, because I always, I saw it as a mode of transportation to get me to the fishing. But you've taken it way, way, way beyond that.
1: Well, I counted you know the the black boat that you and I fish out of now, the drift boat, oh, yeah, that's my nineteenth drift boat,
0: wow, wow, literally
1: I counted them up that's is my nineteenth boat,
0: right, How many of you wrecked none no 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 I, no no no, i mean no. i i would I would always keep, looking to upgrade, yeah, and-
1: exactly, I would keep one for a year or two, and it is a a hell of a strong used market, yeah, right, so I would use a boat guiding for a summer or two, right, no more than two, right, and then I would uh come Across somebody that was looking for one,
0: yeah. My first drift boat trip was in Montana,
1: yeah. Oh, they're my, huge, my, right? My last
0: one was in Maine with you, oh, okay. Okay, and so, but it's amazing that uh, it hasn't caught on more than it has. You still, I mean, you just don't see many of them on the highway or on the rivers, no. Um, here, but um, you know, when you do, you you figure here's somebody who's serious about you know, uh, float fishing, right? Well,
1: there you know, I think a a lot of that comes down to trout per mile. Yeah. There's a reason there's so many drift boats out West because there's so many fish out West. Right. Um, Maine through with its best intentions really is not a world-class trout destination by any stretch of the imagination. No. So we used to have sections up in Gilead on the Androscoggin and a lot of sections down through the middle Kennebec where you absolutely could run a guide service, you know, right. Um, and I still like to go to Solon or um, Madison or a place like that and put a drift boat in and go fishing. Right. And we will catch fish. We're just not going to catch a million. Yeah. Right. So that's why you don't see a lot of drift boats.
0: Right. But for it's me. It's a wonderful way to fish.
1: Well, for, you know, we. Trout fishing, right? I mean, it, Mainers and people in New England love to trout fish. It's perfect for smallmouth bass. It fishes. is. All right. So let's talk about that.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Because that's become your bread and butter from a guide standpoint.
1: In July and August, what else are you going to do? Exactly. People are here on vacation. They want to get out and do something unique. And, you know, you can put on a pair of Crocs or flip-flops, wear your favorite Bermuda shorts, a floppy hat, yep. and catch smallmouth bass all day long on a fly rod or good, a spinning run. And good ones. And good fish. Right. And not see another boat. I know. Hardly a soul. Yeah. And have the time of your life. It's magical. We have uh, street tacos on the river or no, the, whatever. The, the right. best.
0: No, it's the full meal deal. I mean, the, the shore lunch that you that you made for us and the, the two trips that we went this year were just epic. I mean, they were just like, whoa, that's – I mean, a hot shore lunch, a hot, a hot quesadilla. Yeah. I mean, in like five minutes quicker than Chipotle. And it was raining. And it was raining, <laughs> really? Yeah. Really. Uh, I know. And, we, and That's part and of the I, whole experience.
1: And apart. you and I fish together every year. Oh, we do. Yep. Yeah, and yep. we travel. And but back back to smallmouth and drift boats. Um, y- these sections of river, you know, all these. You know, we're talking about the Penobscot, um, the Androscoggin, and the Kennebec. They're all dammed, right? Right. right. So you're going to have places where the water doesn't flow, and then you're going to have places where the water flows. Well, drift boats are really meant to be put in in one place and take out in another. Sure. And there's a lot of opportunities to do that, especially in the middle sections of all three of the rivers I just mentioned. Right. And uh, a drift boat's the way to do it because there's a lot of shallow gravel bars. Yep. And you just can't – unless – even with my jet boat, I can't go through where water was, Tom, That's right? Right. Tell that story. Yeah, right. <laughs> but
0: when <I> was, <clears throat> that was the first trip I made to the Bahamas with a guy named Rupert Lidon, who was the owner of Andros Island Bonefish Club. And, of course, my first trip uh, in a flats boat, we're zipping along the flats, and it was like there's a foot and a half of water, and we're just screaming across this flat. And I leaned (laughs) over, and I said, Rupert, I said, pretty skinny here, pretty skinny. He goes, don't worry, Mr. Tom, this boat, go where water was. I love it. <laughs> That's right. And I just, oh, I never forgot that. Uh, he wasn't scared, so I wasn't I scared.
1: S- I steal that line from you. I would use that <laughs> okay, When I'm right. jet boating and we're going through about four inches of water at 30 miles an hour. You can use it
0: without attribution because you know what? I didn't make any of these up either. I'm just passing them along.
1: If it fits in the gun? Shoot it. <laughs> it.
0: That's right. <laughs> um, but but back to the uh, you know shallow water because you have a new toy. You have a new tub toy. Yeah. And tell me
1: about that. Yep. Okay. So if you do go to South America where we've both fished. Yep. The boat they use down there is often a jet boat. Yeah. So I want you to think 16-foot aluminum, or it could be inflatable. Yep. Right? But in most cases, it's an aluminum boat. Right. And the reason that they prefer to use that down there is there's not a put-in and a takeout. There may only be a put-in. Yep. So you might go downriver. You might go upriver. river. Uh, you're going to go where man has hardly ever been. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been looking at sections, particularly of the Androscoggin, for the last 10 years, because I had my first jet boat experience in South America about 10 years ago. Yeah. And I remember thinking as we were screaming up a river, I got to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was cool. Right. And so I started looking through the lens of my guiding eyes on the Androscoggin as I'm floating down in my drift boat, going, I could get through here if I was over there. Right. I could. So now all of a sudden, if I want to fish 10 miles a river, it may not have that large of a time commitment right. if I put in with a jet. And my other concern was, I think you can alienate people. If you're a guy standing out there on the side of the river and this guy goes by with a 50-foot rooster tail coming out of a jet engine, yeah, yeah. you're not going to see that guy on the Androscoggin where I fish. Right. When's the last time you saw somebody fishing when we were fishing? Never. Right. Yeah. So anyhow, to answer your question, I bought a 17-and-a-half-foot, uh, basically an aluminum John boat, mm-hmm. stripped everything out of it, took, took 280 pounds of plywood and carpet to the dump, right. controls, modules, lights – any fish finder, electric motor, all into the into the waste bin. So now I'm dealing with a skeleton of what used to be a bass boat. I brought it to a professional welder, and I had him basically build me. A mo- wouldn't you say it's a modern flat skiff? Yeah, yeah. For exactly. the river use. Right. So it's a flat deck in the front, flat deck in the back. Mm-hmm. I row it from the center. Right. And when we decide that we've had enough, like you and I did once this summer, the fishing was okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were at the takeout in four minutes. Right. Right? right? Oh, yeah. So that's what that is. With a jet outboard on it. Yeah. So what it is, it's a brand new 2023 um, 60-horsepower four-stroke. And instead of having a proper lower unit with a propeller, they Mm -hmm. replaced the lower unit with a jet drive.
0: Right. You're just a water bug. I'm going, a water I'm, bug, exactly. Going for sure. All right, let's shift gears and go south of the border. We both talked uh, about our times in South America, and specifically in Chile. Yeah. How did you end up down there?
1: Right. Special, I think,
0: special place.
1: Yeah, Chile is a special place. So I, I like the story. Thanks for asking. Yeah. So I had never really, I mean, Chile, I didn't even know if it was C-H-I-L-I or C H I L E. When the phone rings and I'm in Farmington and a guy says to me, my name's Larry Page and I'm from Claremont, New Hampshire, and you guide Steve Wilson. Oh, yeah. I said, I, I do guide Steve Wilson. Right. he says, well, I guide Steve Wilson. I said, oh, okay. I don't think Steve's with us anymore. Yeah. Steve had hired me for years. Wonderful guy. Well, Steve said to Larry. He had a boat named Keepa. Yeah, the Keepa. The Keepa. Yeah.
0: On the Kennebec saw him all the time. Yeah. He was a wonderful, great wonderful man.
1: And natural ambassador for CCA. So Larry knew uh Steve and others. And he called me up and he said, I would I run a lodge down in Chile and it's in Patagonia. So now he's got my attention because now all I can think of is it's a clothing brand. <laughs> right, right? right. But I know that there's some like what is that what does Patagonia mean? I don't really know what that means. But anyhow, he's got my attention. And it's almost like the Bill Cosby record recording that we all had, as comedy album, where it's Noah. uh, Noah, this is God. I want you to build an ark. And he's like, right. Right. Who is this really? (laughs) Right. Right. So Larry's on the phone with me and he's telling me, I own this fishing lodge or I lease this fishing lodge. And I want you to come down and I'm going to pay you to get there. And I'm going to pay you X amount to guide on the rivers in South America through the winter. Wow. What do you say? Yeah. And I said, right. <laughs> right. Who is this really? <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: I said, well, no, seriously. I said, do you, do you have a brochure? <laughs> I said, of course I do. I said, well, would you mail it? I'd like. I'd be interested in, do you mind if I just take a look? Because, you know, this is a, com- a commitment, right? Yeah, yeah right. So <laughs> Larry's not someone like you and I, Tom. He was cheap. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's looking to save a buck. Frugal. He, frugal. Frugal, right. Yeah. So he... He sends me his brochure in an envelope for a convenience store that a friend of his owns that has a bunch of pre-stamped envelopes right. to save the thirty-two cents on the postage. So when I get a pamphlet from Quick Stop in New Hampshire a couple of days later, I think I think it's junk mail. Yeah, right. And I throw it on the on my desk. Yeah. Couple days pass. The phone rings. It's Larry again. Did you get my Did you get my stuff? I said I, I don't. I don't believe I did. He goes, Well, it would have come in a Quick Stop envelope. I go, Oh, I, that's right here. So I'm on the phone talking to him, right? As I'm opening opening up the envelope, and there's these glossy photos of big brown trout yeah. and snow capped peaks mm-hmm. and. I'm like, yeah. Oh, yeah. So November comes, and I fly- November's springtime because they're in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, they're flipped. I- I've got nothing going on in Maine, right? I, I don't know whether to share or wind my watch because there's nothing to do in Maine <laughs> in November. <laughs> right. Right. So I go down there with him, and he teaches me over the course of two weeks where to go, where to fish, introduces me to the Chilean farmers, mm-hmm. and what's occurring to me is I speak Spanish as well or better than Larry does. Right. Because I'm understanding what he's saying and what they're saying. So I'm like, sure. okay, you know, if I just listen more. Yep. So that goes on. Clients come down. We do this for a couple of years. Um, Larry drops dead of a stroke in oh. his driveway. Oh, my gosh. And over time, I became friendly with his wife, Eleanor. And I ended up essentially taking over his operation. Down there by continuing the relationship with the people in Chile. Right. you can't guide in South America as an American. Right. Unless you have dotted all the I's and right. crossed all the T's and met with all the right people. Yep. Especially now.
0: Right.
1: Because there's enough Chileans guiding now that if they see a gringo show up. Right. And you don't look like you have your paperwork. hmm Right? Yep. Right. So that's how I got started down there. That's wild. That's an amazing story. The thing I learned... And he taught me this. I'll tell you another quick story about it. So I remember the very first day that we were there for that first week in November, and he wanted to go to lunch, and he wanted to go to a meeting here. I mean, I wanted to go fishing. Yeah, right. Of course. I mean, I had that box of streamers in my yeah. hand, and I had my... Yeah. So Larry, he smoked filterless cigarettes, mm. and... I remember him taking me up to the river about 20 miles outside of town. He says, well, okay, you want to go catch a fish? We'll go catch a fish. Like, it's a second nature to him. For me, it was like a dream come true. Oh, of course. He takes me to this river, Tom. We've seen it, you know, green water plunging into this 8, 10-foot pool, yeah. you know, and, and it slowly gets wide and slow and moves down before it starts to kind of slowly go over the next gravel bar. Dude. So Larry, hes guy doesn't have waders on he doesn't have a rod rigged or anything right, but i I'm ready to go, and he said, "I want you to go up to that pool and I want you to fish it the way that you think you should fish this pool right so I've got a sink tip line on, and I've got a big streamer, and I walk quietly, you know cautiously i don't want to act like the fool i don 't walk into the water. I cast right out into the deep plunge, and I let that streamer go right down the bottom of the pool. And I'm expecting a chihuahua <laughs> to grab it, right? Nothing. Cast beyond that. Nothing. Cast beyond that. Nothing. Walk down ten feet. Nothing. 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 Hmm. I look back at Larry, and he's smoking a cigarette, laying back in the grass, not even watching me at this point. Right. He gets. He, I get his eye attention. His, you know, we get each other's attention. He says, "You done?" I said, well, I guess so. He says, come up here. He says, sit down. you got cal- you got to calm down. What? He goes, well, first off, nothing happens here until 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, he said, I need you to forget everything you ever learned about trout fishing in North America. Right. He said, take that sink tip line off and put your floater back on. Mm-hmm. I put a floater on. And as we're sitting there, he lights another cigarette. And he's looking down the river. And he goes, OK, you see that dragonfly? And there's a big dragonfly, just like we have here. Right. He goes, watch it. Watch it. It's going right across the tail of the pool. It's only 10 inches of water there. Right. Brown trout, not not 20 inches, but 14, Yep. comes out of the water three to four feet. You've seen this, Tom. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right out of the water after that dragonfly. Right. Misses it on the first attempt, but gets it on the second. Wow. He tie, reaches into his wallet. He pulls out a foam blue Yep. dry.
0: Yep.
1: Ties it on a 1X liter, strong, long. Yeah, and he said, "I want you to wait out and catch that fish in a brown trout." Yeah, at middle of the day, eleven in the morning. Oh, no, it's not a cloud in the sky. Right. It's nothing like fishing in right. here, where we think you got to go at nighttime. They're underneath right. a log, and that's true down there too. Right, but it's more true that your best chances of catching a fish. Because there's no birds of prey down there. Yeah. Like we've got offspring eagle. Right. These fish were introduced only 120 years ago. Sure. In like 1890 and change.
0: Right. They don't feel vulnerable. At
1: all. So they actually, I mean, I've, I've actually killed brown trout for food down there in certain places where it's appropriate and found them full of snails.
0: Yep. Right.
1: You got a snail yeah. pattern I can borrow yeah, from? Right, no kidding. How are you gonna present the snail to the bro?' Right. Isn't that one? So it's a completely different universe. And right. that was probably the hardest thing for me to learn was to f- literally, not only for me to forget, right, but like we talked about teaching. Yep. You take a diehard guy from Wyoming and you tell him, uh, that blue wing all of that ain't that dog ain't gonna hunt.
0: Yeah, yeah, right, right. It's true. That's really true. I'm trying to remember some of the popular patterns. I remember we fished a coastal river uh, outside of Shitev. Mm-hmm. And uh, we motored up, and we didn't get up there till eleven. Mm-hmm. And we were—I mean, it was planes, trains, automobiles—just to get to where we were going to fish. And we get there at eleven, and the guide builds a fire and starts to make short lunch. And we're like, "Hey, let's go!" We're, you know, he goes, "Just relax, relax." And uh, so he made a nice short lunch. We had some burritos, and then he said, "Okay, cleaned up." And he said, "Now let's go fish." We got back in the boat, and we drifted our way back, and we ended up catching. 30 rainbow trout over six pounds right three of them were over 10 all on a white streamer fly they sure. called it um a lighthouse and uh it was a copper lighthouse and a white lighthouse. And uh, the the game was to get them, and we just, there wasn't a wide river and it was pretty flat. And, uh, but there was a lot of deadfalls. Yeah. And they would come out from underneath that deadfall, Mm -hmm. like a brookie. Yeah. You know, like grab it and then run back. And you, we were fishing seven and eight ways because the game was that you had to keep them from getting back because if they underneath, oh, the, you're done. That cover they break you off. It's all
1: over. Bank robbery.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bank robbery. Perfect term. And uh, I just came away from that day saying, I, I mean, I may live to be a hundred and never have a day like that. And they were all really strong, healthy fish. So yeah, it was. It's a special place, and the the, the fishing down there is is incredible.
1: So why did I stop? Uh, I got married. Yep. Um, Two thousand eight. I don't know if you remember, there was something that happened around 2008, 2009. Black Monday. I fortunately got out before things got really bad. Right. But there was a period of time there where we were pretty successful at getting a lot of our clients to come down to um, South America. A lot of people wanted to go because it was that same ladder. If you had learned how to fly fish in the 80s- Right. Right. Maybe you had started to travel out west. Mm -hmm. And then there's it's almost like we talked about the bucket list. Yeah. Going to South America is was one of those things that you wanted to do. Yep. And Chile was a it still is a lot easier to go to than Argentina. Right. I've been to Argentina. Have you hunted by fished in Argentina? No, I've hunted. You've hunted in Argentina. So it's you know, Chile, you can fly into Santiago and be on a plane in, in a half an hour somewhere else. Right. You're not afforded that luxury in Argentina. Right. You land in Argentina and you have to literally go across Bu- uh, Buenos Aires yep. to, the inner, to the domestic airport.
0: Yep. Right.
1: And only then can you fly it up. Right. So right. Chile is a natural destination place for travel um, fishers. So right. we were successful until around, like I said, 2009. But I've since gone back. I've gone back four times just before COVID, the four uh-huh. years leading up to oh, COVID. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And um, I actually have a raft down there that I have with a friend, Jack, who unfortunately just passed away. So our mutual friend, Jaime, who is a Chilean, has possession of it. And he says, Michael, come on down and use it whenever you want. Uh-huh. So, um and it's just an inflatable with a frame, right, which is all you need down there.
0: yeah, yeah. what what were some of the rivers you fished down like?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, my favorite river, I started guiding on on uh, the Cisnes, which was the yeah. river of swans, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. and that's in the Isen region. Uh, this is so if Chile's broken up into thirteen different sections where the top of the country up by Peru is section one. Uh, region one and Tierra del Fuego is region 13. Right. I was in region 11. Okay. So quite a ways now, South, below Shaitan, okay. below Portamon. Yep. Um, Koyeki is the big town that yeah, a yeah. lot of people fish out of there and never leave there. Right. We right. were an hour into the mountains um, on the Manuales River. Okay. And the Manuales River has a lot of tributaries that flow in and out of it uh, Turbio, Tuki, Picaflor. Um, and that ultimately flows into the Simpson, which is a big oh, yeah. river yeah. In, in that area, big name. And so we would stay away from the Simpson because that's where all the guides were guiding float trips. Right, sure. And we would do more intimate drifts uh, with rafts or even just wade fishing in sections and tributaries above that and have great fishing. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, fishing almost like in a temperate rainforest. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, like overhanging similar, trees. Very and,
0: similar. That, that area around Shaitan, we fish the Yelcho, Lago, Lago and Rio Yelcho. Uh the Palena, the Razalat, the Foodle Fuck. Oh yeah. I mean there's just some amazing, amazing rivers.
1: And um, big I mean Franz, yeah. our mutual friend. Yeah. Um he oh. said he left Koyaki, which is where I was because the fish were not ten pounds, right? And he's right. Where I was, there were not ten pound fish. Right, right? Where he went, there were ten pound fish.
0: Yeah, there were some really good fish, both rainbows and browns.
1: The, the thing that surprised me the most was how different it was. It's more like bass fishing, right? In South America, yep. you can get away with using foam dries, right. like a Chernobyl or a yeah, Fat yeah. Albert, yep. something that is a terrestrial. Yeah, where a bass would come up and hit a mouse, mm-hmm. or in a trout, will hit a mouse, but a A brown trout in South America will hit a beetle or a bee or anything on the top. Yeah. Mainly because the river's sterile. Yep. They're all so scoured in the spring by having glaciers draining heavy flows of water. It's like the Carabasset River Mm -hmm. in Kingfield, Tom. Yeah. In the spring, that snow melt coming off from Sugarloaf literally power washes the entomology out of the Carabas right. River. Well, it's that way in every river in South America. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. if you're a six-pound brown trout, you're looking
0: up, up. all the time.
1: In the middle of the day, especially. Right. For four dragonflies and two beetles, and that'll get you to the next shed. <laughs> there you right? go, right. That's it's how right. they make their living.
0: Right. No, that's, that's, good. that's a really good observation. Good point. Uh, okay. So during your time in Patagonia, you had the opportunity to do some TV and film work, right?
1: Well- yeah. Okay, yeah. So let's back up a little bit from there. My very close friend, Carter Davidson, was has been on the podcast. He was in season one. Right. And Carter is probably the most prolific fly fishing film guy in Maine, for sure, and most likely New England. Right. He was a producer for Made in Maine, for Lou McNally, oh, yeah. for Maine Public Television <clears throat> for years. In other words, he was the guy that would go out – Either with the camera guy or was the camera guy, right? And would go into whatever business in Maine, Lincoln Canoe and Kayak yeah, down yeah. in Freeport, and yeah. visit with Sandy who was making the canoes and the kayaks, and come back and shoot an episode, right? Get all the edits in, all that. Was well, Lou McNally? The, well, Lou McNally was the personality,
0: right? But and he's knew, the
1: producer. He's the producer, right. right? So you know, you, we both work with TV. So oh, these, yeah. this is a guy that his name is just at the yeah
0: exactly closing credits. But he was a
1: he's the magician behind the curtain. Yeah, of course. So he starts working with these two – well, starts working with Dan Egan. Mm -hmm. You say, well, who's Dan Egan? Well, you and I aren't really into skiing. I'm probably more so than you. Right. But Dan Egan was a Warren Miller extreme skier. Warren Miller makes and has made – I don't even know if he's still with us – but made films about skiing. They were funny. Oh, yeah. And the Egan brothers, Dan being one of the Egan brothers, was an extreme skier – And he started getting into taking people on exotic ski trips, like you and I might take people on exotic fly fishing trips. Sure. One of the places that he was going skiing was Argentina. So he, they were trying to promote fly fishing down there. Mm -hmm. And Dan doesn't know what end of the fly rod to own, but he knows that two of his good buddies back in Maine that are doing TV work, because now- Carter and I are doing TV work for him, promoting. He's got a uh, New England cable network. Oh, yeah. Nesson. Yep. Right. Um, and <clears throat> we're doing promotions for like Kiddery Trading Post, Northern Outdoors, a couple other co- New England companies. We cover like a triathlon or we right. cover, we're just doing TV stuff. Right. You know, and so we're covering stuff, doing, trying to get some advertisement. Now all of a sudden we have a chance to go down and promote. The Newkin region, which is the next section down from Mendoza. Right. So we're still in wine country. But we're in Patagonia. So what is Patagonia? Patagonia is like saying New England. Right. It's literally a boundary. It's everything below the 45th parallel in the southern hemisphere. Right. Okay. So Chile and Argentina are both in Patagonia yeah. below the 45th hemisphere. Oh, okay. so that's why when I'm – you can be in Patagonia and be in either Chile or Argentina. Sure. But you're in the southern part oh, of okay. the country.
0: Yeah, I've never heard that definition, but that's a good
1: one. It makes sense. That's but- what defines Patagonia. Oh, okay. So – Yeah. So we got the film. We're down there during an airline strike. And if you want to hear more about that story, listen to the Carter Davidson podcast. But long story made short, we were stuck in Argentina for three weeks. Darn. Darn. Really? What did we do? Doggone it. Yeah. There was a domestic airline strike. We couldn't get to an international airport. Right. So yeah, we shot a film for them. We also shot a film for us. Mm -hmm. So we came back and sent down a DVD for them to use that right. they could use in shows, but they would travel anywhere in the world and right. say, come fishing in New Kent. Right. Uh, Martin, uh, St. Martin de los Andes. Oh, yeah. The, the Majeo, the Illumini, the major, major rivers. The Hunin. Hunin, exactly. <laughs> Hunin de los Andes. Right. Have you, yeah, I mean, great fishing. This is where is Joe New-
0: Brooks. Oh, yeah, exactly.
1: You know, I mean, the, the, the originals, right. uh, Kurt Gowdy. Is this south or north of Bariloche?
0: Uh, North, north of okay.
1: Right, so Bariloche is a big ski town. Yeah, this would be about an hour and a half to two hours north of Bariloche. Okay, and this is uh, volcanoes. Yep. um, Rivers coming out of the mountains, just like Chile. Right. Big brown trouts. Big, big brown trout. Big rainbows. But what was my surprise? What? Maine brook trout. Brook trout and. Landlocked salmon. Really? Matter of fact, if you needed to catch an, a, a genetically pure strain of a Sebago Solar right. landlocked salmon anywhere in the world, you'd have to go to Argentina to catch it. I didn't know that. Because we've done so much stocking in Maine of hatchery-reared salmon yeah. on top of uh, the originals that the original gene pool it's, it's, was introduced in the 1890s uh, in Argentina and took. It's same pure. thing it's with books
0: remained pure,
1: yes. Un never stocked again, wow, never stocked over. That's Never crossbreed. Yeah. So
0: it sounds like we both have some unfinished business down in South America.
1: Yeah. We need to get back down there. I'm playing Powerball every week. <laughs> <laughs> we got to figure out another angle.
0: Speaking of unfinished business, there's so many more things you could do. I mean, what can't you do, Mike? I mean, I'm, I'm reading down through your no- our notes here, and I'm thinking, my goodness, you're re- truly, I mean, the, the term is overworked, but you're a renaissance man. From whitewater kayaking and rafting to fly casting, fly. Fishing
1: yeah I mean i i uh I enjoy learning, yeah, you know, I mean, I really do, and things get old for me, um I honestly don't do much trout fishing anymore, right, unless I'm in South America, yeah, a little bit, but i'm I'm more interested in discovering a new place, I'm more interested in looking on Google Earth to yeah. find a place that maybe someone hasn't gone yet, yeah, you know that's why I have a jet boat, that's right. why I take you to places where I don't bring clients, yeah. Right, I mean, you've been down through my magic And That's why
0: I will never pay you. No, I know
1: that (laughs) because there's no (laughs) guarantees.
0: No, no. But I'm telling you, the uh, the 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 smallmouth trips we've had, and I've tried. I've I've talked to people because you and I both know that a lot of our friends, many of them, are gone now. But if they had their choice to have one fish to fish for the rest of their life, Lefty Dave Whitlock, so many of the icons in our industry. They would pick the smallmouth bass, and the places that you've taken me, and I believe me, we've been to. So, I've been to some great smallmouth fisheries across the country. There's nothing that compares to the days that I've had with you on that river that will remain nameless. Yes, uh, and to those places that you've sworn me to secrecy and blindfolded me. And to me, that's it's just it's as good as it gets for a fly fish. Top they- water fish that jump. Big fish, strong. Many of them get you into your back, and it's pretty impressive.
1: And I think there's something really fun about a the casting part of it. Yeah. I think you know Lefty said it in my drift boat in front of a camera. You have to be a much better caster to fish for smallmouth, where your one cast might be 80 feet. Right. Your next cast might be 15 feet. Yep. And if you miss a fish. Instead of reeling all the way back in, you can just pick it up and put it right back down again. Right. And all the flies, I mean, I've learned a ton in my 30 years of guiding smallmouth, 20 years, 30, I don't know what it is. It's amazing to me what they will take. And it, it, for me, it's intriguing. It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not like mayfly, caddis, stonefly. I mean, there's poppers that I don't know why they hit it. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, there's streamers that are neutral that are right on the surface mm-hmm. when they're chasing bait. Right. You know, a bat, a smallmouth can be like a bluefish. Yep. When they start chasing a, a pot of um, uh, sorry, what's the? Give me the name of a little river fish, um, freshwater. Yeah, shiner dace. Shiner dace, dace. That's yeah. what I was trying right. to say. Yeah. Uh, there's a ton of dace um, on the. It chub, yeah, small chub is what they are. Right. When a, when a five pound smallmouth gets, sets his mind that he's going to get a couple of these things, yes. And you throw a neutral streamer right in the middle of that whole right. catastrophe, right? It's really yeah. cool. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah, tree tables, seat backs, upright lock position, <laughs> ready for takeoff. It's, I mean, and the thing I love about it is it's dynamic. When you're fishing from a drift boat, you, you, know, you can't dwell on the past. No. You get a shot at that big fish. He'll show himself, and it's just like if if you don't close the deal, you move on. I, I tell folks, gather the fruit, burn the tree, and move on. Don't dwell on it. That's in the past. That's gone. And then the river sets the pace. Yes. It's just so much, so much
1: fun. And there. you know how much fun I get out of guiding – you know, like Tom, you see those two boulders coming up. Yeah, he's gonna be between yeah, exactly. them, but don't put it right at the top. Put right. it right between them. Yeah, and give it some life and let it die. Yeah, and when we're we're in a team like that, exactly, because I, I I know where the you don't know, but I know because I was there last exactly. Tuesday. Exactly, it's called home field advantage. Home field advantage, and then all of a sudden you're I'm vicariously living through you yeah. oh, and yeah. you're successful because you're, hey, I got it where you wanted me to get it yeah, and I, it worked. I know, I know. I'm telling you what, uh, I'm like, I'm
0: saying to me, mean, we're just winding down on twenty twenty three We're here at late December, and I'm already looking forward to ice out when that water temperature starts to warm, and those fish start coming coming alive again and it's just like I mean you saw the the rivers after the flood last week. It was like you wonder what how, where did those fish go? How do they survive? I've never seen the andro raging like it it was last the week. The funny
1: thing is, Tom, you're right, you wonder where do they go? how do they survive. Well they must be down in Merrimeeting Bay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. There were they were they never left Rumford. Yeah. They never left Dixfield, Canton, right. Livermore Falls J. Yeah, yeah, They Augusta. Yeah. they those fish are all right there. Where did they go? I don't know. I have no idea. How did they survive? Yeah, I can't tell you. Yeah. But they have survived all these years. Oh yeah. I mean, think of the flood of eighty nine, flood, yep. right. flood of eighty seven, flood of ninety eight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we've, I mean, it's a, yes, that's a testimony to their resilience.
0: Oh, yeah, no doubt. Um, listen, so the other thing, speaking of casting, let's talk about the podcast. Wh- wh- how did you get, so where did that come from? Where did the idea, I mean, you just sit down, or you and Sherry say, hey, you know what, I'd like to chronicle this because we got some really neat people living here in Maine that I rub elbows with and I'd like to be able to tell their story. I've enjoyed their stories. I think others will too.
1: Yes and no. Yeah, it, it kind of happened like that. I I started listening to podcasts a couple of years ago, and um, a lot of people don't even know what a podcast is. A podcast is Play On Demand. So, it's a story on tape, just like you get from the library. If yep. you want to listen to Shakespeare and you want to hear someone read it to you mm-hmm. in your car while you drive on your big trip across the country, right. a podcast is no different. <clears throat> the really, what it comes down to is what do you want to talk about? Right. And so, there's podcasts about yoga. There's podcasts about cooking. There's podcasts about natural childbirth. Well, naturally, there's podcasts about fly fishing. Sure. And because I'm, you know- Obsessed with fly fishing in a lot of ways, right? And I mean that. I'm not just obsessed with fly tying. I fly tie. I'm not just obsessed with fly casting. I fly cast. I'm not just obsessed with driftwood. I'm obsessed with all of it, right? <laughs> right. No, there isn't. You're one. an equal opportunity I'm, addict. <laughs> I'm an equal opportunity addict. We couldn't think of a better way to describe it. I, I have, I have a problem. In every way, you could have a problem with fly fishing. I have to travel everywhere. Yeah. I have to get to know everyone. Yeah, yeah. I have to read everything I can get my hands on. So naturally, I start listening to fly fishing podcasts. Right. Most of them are out west. There's a couple of east coast. But it occurs to me very quickly that they're missing the mark. Right. It's basically two white guys talking about how to catch a big trout. Right, 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 and you know, and you know, I always do this, and I put on a dropper, and I'll right. I, I use a zug bug, and I right. if that doesn't work, I used to cut four carbon, and I'm going 5X to I trim the wing on my Prince nymph,
0: just about a third of the way back, yeah, you know, and that just seems to make a difference, yeah, really, wish you know, and, and few- <laughs> how big was it, Tom,
1: <laughs> right, so that's what I was listening to, and just yawning the whole time and going, you know. I'm more interested in hearing about the people, yeah, yeah, and so I you know in all you know full disclosure, I decided that I had an idea, and I started bouncing it off from people, and I think I bounced it off from you, yeah, I know I did, yeah, I said, Tom, what do you think of this idea of me interviewing people that have a meaningful connection to the main fishing fly fishing community and trying to get their story, and I threw out some names, like as an example, Tom. What if I interviewed Brad Burns about being one of the first guys to pick up a fly rod and go catch a strike and subsequently writing a book for L.L. Bean about it? What if I interviewed um, Carol and Lila Ware, who have the most prolific main guide school? Great couple. Great podcast. Yeah, right. So I thought it was a recipe for success to have a conversation with somebody and record it mm-hmm. is only a fraction of what it is to do a podcast
0: really the focus
1: was the hard part no no this is the easy part <laughs> oh wait a second so sherry bought me a book on how to, how to do a podcast. Right. And I read it cover to cover. Like
0: Podcast for dummies? Stuff.
1: Yeah, podcast, like juggling for the complete klutz. <laughs> right. podcasting for the complete clutch. So I, I read this book cover to cover, and what I learned are a few things that I would not have learned. Just like in fly fishing, right? you learn by study. And so I learned right. it can't be a 10-minute podcast. Right. Half an hour is good an hour's better you got to give them a break in the middle yeah. things i wouldn't have thought of yeah sure you have to be consistent if you want your audience to come back over and over and over and over and over again right you can't be inconsistent you have to be consistent so that's why we put it out meaning the podcast episodes every 2 weeks right so the what we learned is that that's the that's the frequency which is digestible oh that's you and i you know i mean you're now retired, Tom. Yeah. Are we admitting that to the yeah. world? Yes, we are. I'm not. So my time's limited. Right. But I could. I have time when I get on a plane to listen to a couple podcasts. If mm. I want to listen to a couple of Flyline podcast episodes, right. I might be able to go down to uh, Cleveland, Ohio on a business trip yep. and listen to four. Yeah, yeah. And that's what people do. and Or go on a road trip driving up to Rangeley with Cindy. Right. You might listen to one in the car. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so- that's what people do. Right. But if there's no frequency to it, or there's not enough dynamics in terms of the types of people you right. have on, right. if we're beating the same horse over and over and over again, and talking yeah. to just white guys yeah, yeah. about catching fish, right. the audience isn't interested. No, no. So we've had a lot of success by mixing it up between the guide that wears the wool jacket yep. with the main guide patch, yes, right up to Macaulay Lord, mm-hmm. right. So Governor Mills, yeah. I mean, the list goes on and on. I'm not as interested in just talking to someone that has a patch and a Grand Laker canoe and call themselves a guide. There's a lot of them and they're great at it. Right. I'm as interested in the person that has an esoteric approach to it. Exactly.
0: When I did TV, I remember talking with- Same thing. Producer. Yeah. And they said- and they were looking for show treatments. They wanted to explore and maybe break out of the hook and bullet genre and so forth and so on. And they looked at Mountain Men and some of these other show treatments. And I said, well, what are you guys looking for? And the, and they finally boiled it down for me, easy enough for me to understand. They said, look, you bring us a character and we will make a show out of that. That's what this is. That's what it is. And I said, ah, I got it. So it's not formulaic. No. It's, it's you bring me the person.
1: Yeah. And with a story, and then we will pull a thread of the story out of it. And that's my job, is to not only select the person, but know that once I have somebody that I'm going to have a chance to speak with, and I feel very blessed to have people say, yes, I will do this with you. Right. Uh, And I mean that. Oh, yeah. Because it's not easy. Right. uh, To get someone to volunteer their time, especially when their time is precious. Right. And then to actually open up. Yeah, and talk about their childhood and their vulnerabilities and the things that maybe that they wouldn't mention to other people. What they do,
0: you have, yeah, you have to create a safe zone for them to do that, a comfort zone. Uh, and not everybody is comfortable doing that. But I think part of that is to, one of your strengths is that believe it or not, you've done a lot of talking today, but you're an excellent listener and you're a, an active listener. So you take away things from what people say, and you use that to. Illuminate the conversation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that was ta- I. I learned that skill set um, sitting in a drift boat for eight or ten hours a day with people. Right. That if you are the one that's going to do all the talking and none of the listening, it's not that fun. No, it's not. And no. I can tell when I'm when I've been hired as an example. We, if someone hires me for a day or two a guiding, and at the end of those two days. If that guy didn't say to me, where do you live? Where'd you go to college? Right. Are you married? Do you have children? Right. If he didn't take any interest in who I am as a person, even if he was the client with the checkbook. Yep. It tells me something about who they are. Yeah, yeah.
0: Exactly.
1: And, when, and as you know, Tom, if we go up to Labrador and, and, and Chase is my guide. I'm going to know more about Chase's mother's background right. and where he grew up yeah. and where he shot his first deer. Right. I'm more interested in Lauren. and that's you because I'm in I get something out of that. Of course. It's not like I need to catch number 4 fish and he's going to show me how to do it and what fly do I put on? Right. I get so much more out of talking to the people in the boat right. when I'm guiding them. Yeah. And I knew that the podcast would be just another extension of that same approach yep. of saying, hey, you know, Randy Spencer, I know we've never met before, right. but you're a master guide. I'm a master guide. Yeah. We're on opposite ends of the state. but right. I've got a couple questions about how that time you almost got arrested by the main warden service. Can we talk about that, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then let him go, and yeah, you yeah. know, I got another question, yeah, yeah, and what a fun way to oh, spend yeah. time, yeah, no doubt, and then the other thing that's come out of it is old friends, like I mean, like I've had an opportunity because of working in the capacity that I have of meeting people like you, Tom Ackerman is you know you're kind of a big deal Tom. <laughs> Yeah. All right. You know, so having you come in and fish with me has led me to meet other people like Harvey Wheeler. Right. So the six degrees of separation, yeah. you meet other people through people. Yep. And so, uh, Kathy Scott and David Van Bergel, she's an author. He's a world famous cane rod builder. Yep. These two are. Highly respected in the main fly fishing community, right. they're old friends of mine. Yeah, yeah, I've known them for yeah, thirty yeah. years. Sure. Why would I not want to tell their stories? Exactly. She's written five books. Yeah, he teaches at the uh, museum in the Catskills on how to build cane rods every summer. He's yeah. the head instructor. Yeah, yeah. So and it goes on and on. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, you know, yeah.
1: Everyone's got a story. Some stories are more interesting than others. Right. But I find I get an interesting story out of someone that I thought was going to be kind of a dud. Yeah.
0: It's that's, you know, I, I say everyone has a story if you take the time to listen. Yeah. You know, and that's sometimes what it's in our fast paced, you know, world. You, you know, we, we deal in sound bites. And for to be able to sit down and invest, I mean, that's probably one of the highest forms of, of, uh, of respect and appreciation you can give anybody is to listen what they have to say you've got a great story you tell it well you've had a measure of success with the podcast and i you know you've been going like gangbusters for a long time i mean you and and sherry i mean you're the unsung hero she uh, without her this doesn't have none of this happens like you said she is an amazing amazing asset you're really fortunate to have her talk to us about
1: her role yeah it, so yeah, I kind of I kind of went over Sherry pretty quickly there because we were talking about I got a book on podcasting, right? And Sherry bought me the um, we'll call it the electronic podcasting kit, which is to say, a mixing board and a microphone and internet connection that you could hook, hook up to your laptop, and you know a camera like you have on top of your right computer right there, Tom, so you can have a Teams meeting or. Or a WebEx meeting, or anything like that. So the first few podcasts we did, because of COVID, were remote. Right. So I'm talking to Randy Spencer, and he's in Grand Lake Stream, and I'm in Naples, Maine. Right. And what we learned in doing that was, it was a lot to ask the guest. To set up their computer and make sure their internet connection was fast enough that we could have a video conference. Right. And to do this and do that. And, and you know, people were patient with us in the beginning, but it started to occur to me. Well, when we interviewed the governor, it occurred to us that we couldn't do a remote interview. We were invited to go to right. the state House Sure. And sit down in the cabinet room. Yeah, yeah. And that was going to require different technology than a computer laptop because we're going to be sitting next to the governor, which we did. Yeah. So back to Sherry. She works for IDEX. She's an IT person. She's not an IT person. She does a lot of things. but IT is her specialty. She really knows everything that there is to know about technology. And if she doesn't know it, she learns it quickly. She grew up in a very challenging situation as a child, uh, raised by a single mother who was living off the state Mm. Sherry early on learned to be an adult. She started cooking meals for her family because her mother didn't have the capacity to do it. Wow. And she's a survivor. Yeah. Right? She has a high school education. She has a position now that most people would have a master's degree yeah. in order to hold her job. Yeah. She has that kind of skill set. She's remarkable. She's remarkable, is right? So when I started to go down the road of doing a podcast, she jumped in and said, no, you need to you need to understand if you're going to use that kind of technology. Right. you need a program like this, and let me research that and let me give it. Next thing you know, she's producing the podcast. yeah, I've never looked back. yeah, she's fantastic at it. So all the things you see on our website and on our blog post and any of the announcements and everything on Facebook. That's all Sherry. Right. And she does a great job. And that's not just me saying it. No,
0: no, no. We
1: get a lot of feedback. Yeah. I mean, really, really good feedback. I hear people say to me, Mike, I listen to podcasts all the time. Yeah. And your podcast is really good for these reasons. And a lot of it has to do with the part that Sherry... Of course. She's your secret weapon. She really is. She's my best friend.
0: Oh, yeah. And and that shows. And um, I will tell you, we both struck on the same formula for success. um, And that is a, 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 a... a hardworking woman and a loudmouth man. Right, right. I mean, for it just works. Yeah, and uh, I'm very grateful for my bride as well. Uh, but I will tell you, uh, I've really enjoyed holding the reins here for the Flyline Podcast. I've had a couple of revelations as I was sitting here while you were talking. I ordered a copy of Podcasting for Dummies, and I think I'm going to take a jump in and, and take a shot at doing a podcast on um, fly fishing. Luminaries and guides yep. in the state of Maine. What do you think? Can I get some? Can uh, yeah. You help me?
1: Yeah. No, there's a lot of room, Tom. <laughs>
0: Plenty of room. Competition is good; it drives quality up and price down. Yeah, yeah. So
1: I think the more, the merrier. A rising right? tide raises
0: all ships. <laughs> that's chefs. right. Yeah. Hey, Mike, it's been a real, real pleasure. Mr. Tom, I'm I nice. just,
1: yeah, I want to thank you, Sherry, and I really appreciate you doing uh, it. Uh, you're a close friend. I love you as a brother. Uh, amen. I'll go anywhere you'll take me. Yeah. And uh, thank you for coming with me on this journey today to yeah, to talk a little bit about who I am to the audience that's yeah. been asking about it.
0: You're a remarkable fella. And I'm really proud to know you. And I just want to wish you continued success and much joy on the journey.
1: Thank you, Tom. All
0: right, buddy. I'm Tom Ackerman. And that's it for this episode of the Flyline podcast.
1: Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion. And thank you for listening to Flyline podcast. A new Flyline podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays. So be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, This is Michael Jones, and we invite you to visit the blog section of our website to enjoy photos and contributions from our guests and experience all of our episodes at flylinepodcast.com.